Abby Strauss, and welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. Robert Hare is a psychologist at the University of British Columbia. His many professional contributions to our understanding of psychopathic behavior have been recognized throughout the world. Dr. Hare, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Many people interchangeably use the terms psychopathy, antisocial, personality behaviors, and sociopathy. Can you tell us what these terms mean? Are they the same? Are they different? Which one should we use? Well, somebody will argue that they should be used as synonymous terms, but in fact, I think they're not. Sociopathy tends to refer to pattern of behavior, attitudes and behavior that could be understood in terms of one's upbringing, exposure to peer groups, being raised and, you know, and functioning in a subculture that actually is, has norms and, and, and ethics that are somewhat inconsistent with that of the larger society. So many gang members, people, growing up in disadvantaged areas, like criminal subcultures, could be referred to as sociopaths. But these are the people, these people would have capacity for conscience, empathy, and, and loyalty towards members of their own group. Antisocial personality disorder is a somewhat different thing, and it, it's part of the DSM-4, Statistical and Diagnostic Manual of Mental Diseases, and refers to a pattern of behaviors, antisocial and some criminal behaviors, that I think originally were intended to describe psychopathy. But in DSM-3 in 1980, the argument was that psychiatrists, psychologists could not actually evaluate personality traits, especially the traits that were important for a diagnosis of psychopathy. So they went, a lot, they went with a list of behaviors that they could actually measure and record quite easily. So psychopathy would include many of the characteristics of APD, and also personality traits that we think are important, lack of empathy, grandiosity, things of that sort. How common is it in our society? Well, psychopathy has been estimated at about 1% of the general population, but the problem here is that we have to define a cut point, a threshold. So the recent evidence we have is that psychopathy is a dimensional construct rather than categorical or, or part of a taxon that is fundamentally different from other people. So the evidence suggests that it's a more or less disorder. So it's more grayscale than absolute black and white? Well, it's sort of like blood pressure. You know, blood pressure runs, ranges from low through somewhat normal to high. But what do we consider high? It depends upon all sorts of factors. And the same thing with psychopathy. We, there's a point at which we would say that, that, that this individual has so many of these characteristics that define the disorder that we feel comfortable in using the term psychopath. So when we talk about prevalence, we have to take into account what, what would the threshold or the cut point be. And for research purposes, on an instrument that I've developed for the years called the Psychopathy Checklist Revised, the PCLR, we would use a cut point of 30 for a research diagnosis of psychopathy. And this turned out to be quite fruitful because it allows researchers in different parts of the world to be reasonably certain that they're talking about the same construct. Now, if we take that cut point and apply it to the general population, we would end up with about 1%. Okay, now I have seen the PCL, and it's got 20 different items on it, if I remember correctly. That's correct. And how is it that you arrived at those particular 20 items? They, actually, there were a lot more items than that to start with. It probably had maybe somewhat over 100 items. I had worked in a penitentiary uh, just before I went on to my PhD, and when I got back to the academic world where I began to teach, I started to research at the same prison. And in those days, our problem was to try and assess this particular disorder that I was trying to study. And, of course, we had 
you know, self-report inventories like the MMPI and or we'd have, in my clinical opinion, or we had in those days DSM, DSM-2, and they weren't very successful at actually differentiating the individuals I was interested in from the rest of the prison population. So we had to come up with a system to uh, you know, provide sort of some common measuring tool. And it was based upon the traditional construct of psychopathy, everything that I could read up on psychopathy going back, you know, some of the stuff would go back 50, 100 years, and also my experience in the prison and an attempt to look at the experimental literature that had been developed on this particular topic. So based on all these different things, including the work of Herbie Cleckley, I was able to put together a list of some, you know, maybe 100, 100 plus items. And then through standard uh, psychometric procedures, we could cut the item list down to 22 and eventually down to 20. And these were items that we thought would cover the full range of the psychopathic disorder. And that that would include the notions of callousness or attention-seeking or thrill-seeking? Yes, yes. And in fact, some of the items would be involved with impulsivity, need for stimulation, susceptibility to boredom, but also grandiosity, you know, self-serving approach to the world, manipulation, lying, deception, control of other individuals. And I think that's most importantly, lack of empathy, lack of guilt or remorse for having committed antisocial acts. For many years, it was considered that this group of people actually had some sort of psychodynamic flaw, background, trauma, or something. Where, where, what makes a person a psychopath? Well, it's, pretty, it's, pretty it's a big question. I wish I knew, knew the answer to that. Uh, we, we're getting some clues. But you're right about the psychodynamic origins of much of the, the thinking on psychopathy. Then, of course, we'd always look for underlying conflicts. Well, I didn't, but the others did underlying conflict, something in the background of the individual that would explain his or her behavior. And that that approach hasn't really gotten too far. There's a lot of recent research now indicating that there are genetic factors involved, so heritability of some of the personality traits that we think are important for psychopathy is fairly high. I mean, there, there are five or six, maybe as many as ten different large-scale twin studies now, different parts of the world indicating that the traits and behaviors that we think are important for psychopathy have fairly high heritabilities. So clearly what we're dealing with is a construct, a disorder, that is the joint product of some sort of genetic predisposition plus exposure to a particular environment and, of course, the interaction between the two, which is extremely important. Does it change with age? Do we see people having fewer signs of psychopathy as they grow older or perhaps even when they're younger? Depends what you mean by signs. If you're looking at some of the core features of psychopathy, such as capacity for empathy and capacity for having fairly normal emotions and so forth, the evidence indicates that there isn't very much change throughout much of the lifespan. What may change as they, as an individual gets older, is impulsivity, perhaps irresponsibility, maybe some of the sensation-seeking characteristics as well. So people tend to show these reductions anyway as they get older in these behaviors, and psychopaths are are not much different in that respect. Is there a cultural or a gender quality that somehow is particularly associated with psychopathy? It appears that there might be. We would argue, on the basis of a fairly large amount of research, that the essential characteristics that define psychopathy are much the same in males as they are in females. But, of course, the expression of these characteristics would, would be dependent upon sexual expectations, uh, cultural expectations, and so forth. 
And of course, all based also upon the physical characteristics of the individual, so that a male psychopathic person would be able to do things that perhaps a female psychopathic individual would be reluctant to do or couldn't do. Although this is changing in our society, so that the differences between male and female psychopaths, I think, are decreasing with time. And is it pretty much across cultures? So if we were to go to South Africa or Australia or you up in Canada, any difference? Well, I've been to those countries and many more. <laughs> and the the evidence indicates that the fundamental aspects of psychopathy are very much the same across cultures. There are techniques that are statistical techniques that one can use to determine whether or not, say, a given score on the PCLR in the United States or Canada has the same meaning with respect to the underlying trait of psychopathy in different cultures. And a lot of work has to be done yet, but so far that appears that we're talking about much the same sort of construct. One of the things that has always intrigued me when I've had to use the word antisocial behavior or a similar term is that people almost, shall I say, instantly jump to it as being a sign of violence or criminality. Yes. Is that an overextension? Well, no, it's not. And I think when, if you use the term, a more loaded term, of course, is psychopath, then people immediately think of serial killers and you know the people who do all these, these cold-blooded, violent acts. And, uh, of course, many psychopaths certainly engage in those behaviors, but many more don't. So it's unfortunate that we tend to think of the psychopath as a rapist or a killer or a serial killer, and we tend not to think of the psychopath as a businessman, a stock promoter, a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and so forth. If we were to look back into childhood, are there some markers that we can use to help us predict or expect that a child will develop these traits? Yeah, and of course the, the question is a difficult one to answer without crossing the ire of some people. They'd say, well, you can't even talk about psychopathy in the adolescence or childhood because the personality is still developing. But notwithstanding that particular concern, there is evidence that you can identify characteristics at a very early age, six, seven, eight years of age, that presumably, if left unchecked, unmodified, will develop into adult psychopathic behaviors. The twin research, for example, that, uh, to which I referred earlier, is based quite often upon very young children, some as, as young as six and seven. And at that age, there are some characteristics that typically referred to as callous unemotional. And in fact, you'll see that the, the acronym for that term, CU, callous unemotional traits, used quite often with respect to the developmental psychopathology for this particular disorder. So these are characteristics uh, such as it could be possible cruelty to other children, to animals, and so forth, which is one of the standard things that people look at. But also, a, a, a sort of a lack of, of emotional connectedness to other people at a very, very early age, and somewhat beyond the norm. I mean, it, it, you wouldn't expect a young child to think about the future too much, to plan ahead, and to lack impulsivity, but we're talking about somewhat beyond the norm. When you bring up the notion, however, that there is perhaps a genetic quality to this, a quality of being inherited, it takes it into the concept, or shall I say, into the areas of it being a disease, and that gives it a whole different flavor. Well, I think there's a tendency to look at psychopathy and most psychiatric disorders as, as if they're, they are diseases. We have the medical model that we use. But some of the recent research on the topic now is trying to tie it into normal personality theory. 
And the argument here is that psychopathy, whether in adolescence or adulthood, reflects extreme variants of normal personality traits. And it's this combination of these extreme variants that will define disorder. So you can look at it with, you know, from the perspective of the disease model, but it's, I think it's more fruitful to look at it as a variation of normal personality traits. Now, it's a particular, particularly virulent combination of traits. You know, if we have like very low empathy, high impulsivity, high sensation seeking, very, very shallow emotions, that combination, even though they're extremes of normal personality traits, is still problematic for society. And obviously, sir, the, the question that always rises to the top is what can we do about it? How do we undo it? How do we prevent it? How do well, we fix it? Yeah, it's pretty hard to undo it. Uh, we're talking about treatment or some sort of modification of attitudes and personality and behavior. It's very, very difficult to do in adulthood. In fact, there's no evidence that we can actually affect any meaningful changes in the personality of adult psychopaths. So what we've got to do is go back into adolescence and better still into early childhood and recognize that there are early indications of what may turn out to be problematic behaviors. And if we don't know something at that time, then we're going to be left to deal with the adult you know, product. There's some research indicating that if you can get children fairly young who have many of these characteristics are getting into trouble, even sometimes with the law, that if you can get them into proper behavioral, cognitive behavioral modification treatments, then they, there's some, some evidence that, in fact, you can modify and change their behavior. Is there any role of medications? Not that we know of yet. Mind you, that's something that is likely to happen in the future, I suspect. I mean, some people have talked about some neurotransmitter problems, perhaps the balance between dopamine and serotonin. Some evidence from Sweden indicating that there's a kind of a an odd balance and odd the ratios are all wrong. Uh, I'm not sure what that means yet, but it would suggest to some people that perhaps eventually we may have some sort of biochemical treatment, in the same way that we have aldopa for Parkinson's disease. But this implies that we're dealing with the disease, and I'm not quite sure that we are. When I was in training, we it was often suggested that perhaps the psychopath was someone who was an untreated attention deficit disorder who just simply never learned social skills. Well, there, there's one, one of the more recent theories was that psychopathy arises out of a combination of ADHD and conduct disorder. That particular combination was supposedly highly predictive about psychopathy. It is predictive, but not that strongly so. So a lot of people that we consider to be psychopaths uh, did not have that particular combination of characteristics. One of the things that of, should be of great concern, I think, to the psychiatric, psychological, and criminal justice areas is all of the new research on uh, neuroimaging. My group and I have con contributed to this particular literature, and the evidence that's coming out is that the, the psychopath, psychopaths differ fairly dramatically in the, the activation of brain regions that should be related to emotion and processing, understanding, production of emotional material. And there are other things that are coming out as well. For example, there may even be structural differences between psychopaths and the rest of the, the population. Our problem here is that we don't know if these functional or structural differences are causally related to their behaviors or simply are correlated. We just don't know yet. 
And we have this new project that's been developed. It's developing right now. It's called the Law and Neuroscience Project, funded by the MacArthur Foundation, trying to determine to what extent individuals may be less culpable for antisocial criminal behavior on the grounds that they have different brain and function and structure. And one of the targets for this particular concern is the psychopathic personality. Which is an incredibly key issue in a lot of the forensic work, trying to assign responsibility. Oh, certainly. It comes up all the time. In fact, I've, I've been asked many, many times over the years to, to consult with defense attorneys who argue that, well, my client's a psychopath, and we know that the literature in psychopathy indicates that they have trouble processing emotional and other important information, and therefore maybe they're not completely responsible for what they have done. And because I don't, I don't appear in court. I never testify in court. I don't function or operate for one side or the other. So I turn all that down. But the issue is there. So the scientists will take a different perspective than will the courts. And and that's one of the maybe that's one of the good things. The courts are likely to take a much more rational view of this than the scientists are. I mean, we we look at all these these the neuroimaging studies, both function and structure, and say, well. This explains why the psychopath or others are committing this kind of behavior. And, of course, we would argue that it doesn't. And, of course, would probably not buy our simple arguments as well. One of the things that we have to look for and we don't have, if we're going to use all this neuroimaging data for uh, judicial purposes, is to find out how these functions and structures are distributed throughout the general population. We don't have any normative data. We don't know, for example, that if, if an individual has a particular structure of the brain, say, you know, maybe reduced size of the amygdala or the hippocampus or some part of the brain uh, dealing with emotion, or if that part of the brain isn't functioning as well as it is for the general population, we don't know whether or not that causes any particular form of antisocial criminal behavior in the general population. We don't even have that basic information. And yet when we get into adults and into the criminal justice system, the assumption is that if you can identify some anomaly in the brain, this explains the behavior. Of course, we don't know that it does. So the work goes on, and I must thank you so much for joining us. Robert Hare is a psychologist at the University of British Columbia. He is obviously an expert and has spent his, I guess, the better part of your professional life dealing and studying with psychopathy. And he's given a great deal of information to our community. Dr. Hare, we thank you so very much for being with us. Uh, You're very welcome. Have a good day.